Sawbones is a show about medical history, and nothing the hosts say should be taken as medical advice or opinion. It's for fun. Can't you just have fun for an hour and not try to diagnose your mystery boil? We think you've earned it. Just sit back, relax, and enjoy a moment of distraction from that weird growth. You're worth it. <laughs> And welcome to Sawbones, a marital tour of misguided medicine. I'm your co-host, Justin McElroy. And I'm Sydney McElroy. Sid, it's that time again. It's time when you and I can, you know, I think these are fun. And I think that these are usually the most fun I have doing episodes sometimes. I love to learn. I love to grow. I love to be scared. You and, do. And sad. The adrenaline rush. And sad? <laughs> wait, 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 wait. Scared? Okay, a lot of people enjoy that, but sad? Often sad. Oh, listen, I'm just saying sometimes the episodes, the sods, as I call them, make me sad or scared or unhappy, but... It's okay to, to be sad, sad sometimes. Um, and it is, but not <laughs> today. Daniel Tiger says that, not us. Not, I mean, we agree. Not today. Today, we are going to have some fun... And answer your weird, weird medical, medical questions. questions. It's a segment we like to call Weird, weird medical, medical questions. questions. All right. Here's a first one from Linnea. I had my daughter almost 11 months ago, and I can still occasionally feel the sensation of baby kicks. Some quick Googling has informed me that there are probably phantom kicks, and they can stick around for quite some time. Why does this happen? Is it pretty common? Does it ever get less unsettling? I am so glad that Linnea asked this question, because I'll be honest, I have experienced these, and I didn't know that it was a, I didn't know it was a thing. I don't know if you remember this, Justin, but I actually experienced it to the extent that I had a momentary freak out. Mm. Do you remember this? Yeah, where you thought maybe. Where I thought maybe I was somehow. pregnant again. And I didn't know how that was. See, I said I like being afraid. <laughs> and now you brought up this little sawbones chiller. Now thinking you, of I, having another child. This. I know, but just the idea is sending you me into a panic spiral. It was thinking well, about a third kid. And, <sighs> and it was very much, I mean, Justin, of course, we've discussed extensively has had a vasectomy. I had no reason to think I was pregnant, uh, but my periods are pretty irregular, so you never know. And then I thought, well, could I have not known so long that the quickening has already occurred? There's no <laughs> way. So I have experienced these kicks, and they really do feel i mean in my experience my of one my end of one exactly like it did uh early in when you start feeling the baby move not not like the later kicks like towards the very end where you can like see the foot or the hand through right. through the belly but like that those early little flutters definitely felt that way and apparently in in there aren't there isn't a lot of research on this um 
Surprise, surprise. Yeah. It primarily affects women. So there you go. <laughs> uh, but if uh, in, in the limited studies that they've done on this phenomenon, they found that about 40% of pregnant people report that this has happened to them. Mm-hmm. And it can vary from like once or twice a year to daily. Wow. For some patients, it just depends. Uh, so it's pretty common. Uh, for most, it lasts on average about 6.8 years after delivery. Hachi machi. A long time. Uh, one person reported that it lasted 28 years. Yeah, they were probably making it up. Don't you think they're pretending for attention? Why, Justin? Why I, would she lie? I just. No, no, no. I mean, I misspoke. Um, <laughs> let me start over. I would. <laughs> I was just kidding. It's just I know. Jokes I know. Uh, so no answers there. No good. No hard answers from science. On Why one. does it happen? The, our best guess is that it could be some sort of uh, akin to what we think of as like phantom limb syndrome mm-hmm. after someone has had an amputation and they still continue to feel their their foot or their hand or whatever uh there's been there was so much increased innervation so many more nerves in the stomach like in the abdominal wall uh during pregnancy that perhaps like afterwards like removing that sensation of the baby moving inside you'll still feel it so it could be akin to that um other people thought maybe it's just like an at you've experienced it before so now when you have a feeling from something else physiologic that feels that way your brain is going to link it to that so maybe it's more of like a error of attribution kind of thing but Mm -hmm. um but it could, I mean, it could very well be a neurological phenomenon. I, I have experienced it too. It's very strange. Uh, okay. You often hear the sm- that the pee of a diabetic smells sweet because they can't process sugar or that you can smell it in your urine after eating asparagus. I love that. Uh, but oh, often. You do. That's the strangest thing that you I do. It makes me I mean, so it, proud of myself. It's like a good reminder of how good I was. But it doesn't bother me. But it, it also is not, it's not like something that I'm like, yeah. But you felt proud. Like, I did eat a vegetable. You're right, body. Thank you for reminding me. Uh, often after I eat a flavorful meal, like Indian food, Cuban, or something else with a lot of spices, my pee smells like whatever I recently ate. It's certainly more pleasant than the standard bathroom smells, but it's certainly odd. What's going on? It's from Erica. So, Erica, there are actually a couple other foods that, for most of us, are going to make our urine smell different. Uh, Most notably, fish can, garlic can, and onions can. So, you said a lot of, like, spicy foods. It makes sense that you might be noticing that association because those, those three in particular have been noted to leave a similar smell in the urine. Mm. And it just has to do with what kind of like volatile compounds are in the food that your body processes, but still comes out through the urine. If they're still in there, those, those things that release the scent, you're going to smell the food that you ate. Um, so if it's things like that, it could just be that simple that you're just, you're noticing those specific compounds. Uh, on a side note, this has probably has nothing to do with what you what you were experiencing, but just urine odors in general. There are a whole collection of metabolic conditions. Now you would know about this from birth, so this isn't something that's been missed, that can cause your urine to smell a variety of, variety of ways. Most notable is maple syrup urine disease, which as you may guess, may, makes your urine smell like- <laughs> That is a wild name for a, for a disease. <laughs> maple syrup. They're ones that can make your urine smell like sweaty feet. That's, what, that's how it's described. 
sweaty yeah. feet. Yes. Uh, there's a whole variety, but those are all things that you would you'd find out like from the jump. Their problems, genetic inborn errors. Um, but generally speaking, if this is something that always happens and you're totally fine, otherwise it's, you're probably just noticing like garlic or onions or something. But it is important to note that there are uh, a variety of other things like urinary tract infections or some sexually transmitted infections, those kinds of things that can change the odor of your urine. Diabetes is another thing that you've already mentioned. So if you're concerned at all, if you're worried about anything, if you're having other symptoms and you also notice that your urine has changed odor, you may want to go get checked out by a doctor. But it, otherwise, it's probably just something like garlic or onions. I got one from Anders. Does putting a Band-Aid on after a shot actually do anything? Justin, what do you think? Uh, my guess would be it keeps it's. I mean, maybe very slightly because it is a point at which germs could get in. It's a hole in your body. But uh, I think by and large, it just like one lets people know that you got a shot. And so they can feel bad for you or, or proud of you if it's a flu shot. Uh, or two, it like just in case it's a little dribble of blood. That's gross. It'll get on your shirt. It's nice to get that little drop of blood off. That's really probably the most the most useful thing that a band aid does is after we give you a shot. Uh, some people, if you're on a blood thinner or something, you might actually have a few, a little bit of oozing. Um, but for most of us, maybe a drop or two. Either way, you don't want it on your sleeve. Um, and you don't want to walk out with your sleeve rolled up, just kind of oozing blood, even if it's just a teeny, teeny bit. Mm -hmm. That's unpleasant. So that's really it. Um, there, there, sh there really is no other function. It's not doing. Don't ever tell my kids, but it's not actually making it better. <laughs> uh, Karen wants to know, why do skin tags happen? Is there any safe way to remove them? So skin tags are very normal. About half of adults re report that they have a skin tag somewhere. Um, they're usually just at points of like friction, uh, somewhere like in a, a, a natural point of friction in your body because of like a skin fold or, um, like a joint or something like that, or, uh, due to where clothes might, might hit you and, and cause friction. Uh, it's just an overgrowth of skin. It's just like collagen and vessels and things get trapped in a little bit of skin growth and you get this little, what, what we call pedunculated that means it's on a little stalk. Pedunculated? It's a fun word. That's very good. Yeah, it's a good word. Uh, but it's a little stalk and a skin tag. Uh, they, they typically are absolutely no big deal. Nothing to worry about. But a lot of people don't like them. I, I can tell you in my, in my experience as a physician, a lot of people come and ask to have them removed just because you, they don't like them. It's, a, you know, for cosmetic reasons. Um and if they do get caught on something, depending on where they are, you know, I mean, they can. That's rough. I've been there. That's that, rough. That can happen and that can be irritating. So uh, for those reasons, some people do seek to get them removed. And we can do that pretty easily in the office um, by either numbing them with a little bit of lidocaine, some local anesthetic, and then clipping them off. Or I actually have some patients who have just said, could you just clip it off real fast because the stick and the burn of the lidocaine is actually worse than the feeling of the, if they're very teeny right, just, of the yeah, snip. Um, what I would say is if you want them removed, go talk to somebody to do it under sterile conditions. So you don't end up with like infection or, or a lot of bleeding or something. Um, because even though I, I have patients who try to twist them off, or no, them off themselves. I know this is supposed to be a fun one and you could probably get away with that a lot of the time. But then that one time you end up with a skin infection or you end up with 
it bleeding and not stopping, then you're in trouble. So just, you know, come talk. That's something as a family doctor, I did that all the time. Certainly dermatologists can too, but most, most primary care doctors can handle that for you. I work as a custodian, and a few months ago, I got a rash on my hands, mainly covering my fingers, where my skin became covered in itchy bumps that oozed clear fluid when popped. Ha. Woof. Moving on. I talked to a dermatologist, and he told me it was a kind of dermatitis caused by washing my hands too much. I was wondering, have you ever had to deal with this, being a doctor and needing to wash your hands a lot, too? Do you have any tips for avoiding damaging my hands anymore while also remaining hygienic? Thanks in advance. Sarah. So this is this is actually not to the extent that you're describing, Sarah, but this is actually a very common problem in my experience among healthcare providers because we do wash our hands a lot. And a lot of us tend to use the um, alcohol based hand sanitizers a whole lot. And that's especially drying to the skin. So while I've, I've, I've never had the a dermatitis to the, you know, to the extent that you've described, I have had very dry, cracked, scaly skin. And, and I know a lot of my colleagues have as well from the frequent hand washing. Uh, number one, and this goes for me too, we should probably whenever possible wash with soap and water. Um, one, because if there is any like visible like debris or oils or anything, you actually do a better job getting your hands clean with soap mm-hmm. and water than you do with the hand sanitizer. So it's always, it's, a, it's actually always preferable to use if you can. I mean, if you're in a situation where you can use soap and water, do that. If all you have is hand sanitizer, of course, that's fine. But um, but soap and water is probably better for the hands than the hand sanitizers are. So that's one thing. Um, for your condition in particular, I'm betting the dermatologist may have recommended certain like medicated ointments or creams. Um, and that's not for everybody. Moisturizing is what the rest of us can do. So mm-hmm. whenever you can, especially maybe after you've just gotten out of the bath or shower and your hands are damp, not wet, but a little damp, putting on a heavy duty, unscented moisturizing lotion doesn't have to be anything fancy or expensive, just something heavy duty, moisturizing, unscented uh, for most of us can help alleviate that problem and just keep it up. Even if your hands aren't feeling dry, especially through like uh, the winter months when you're going to be washing your hands a ton and the air is very dry. Um, that moisturizing can help a lot. I wanted to take this opportunity to note real fast that knowing how to wash your hands appropriately is really important always. But especially right now, we're all talking about it. Um, You should do this all the time. There's a whole campaign from the CDC called Life is Better with Clean Hands. I didn't know they had a hand washing campaign. Charming. But they do. Um, So if you want to go to the cdc.gov slash hand washing and then when how hand wash they have they have an entire section on washing your hands and how to do it and like promotional materials and pictures you can look at um but like generally i think most of us know before during and after you prepare food before eating if you're taking care of somebody sick you want to wash your hands after you go to the bathroom if you're taking care of like a cut or a wound around animals or garbage or if you blow your nose or cough or sneeze or change a diaper anything like that. You need to wash your hands. Um, and the five steps, wet your hands with clean running water, warm or cold, or cold is fine. Then apply the soap, lather your hands by rubbing them together, lather the back of your hands between your fingers, your nails. I saw a really great video online where somebody practiced with paint mm. so that they could see how to make sure they didn't miss any spots and what mm-hmm. the common spots are. Um, you scrub your hands for at least 20 seconds. And as I think most people know, what song can you sing? Somebody once told me the no, world that's... is going to... It works. Let me finish. So, time me. Okay. Watch the timer. All right. You watch the timer? 
Watching. Okay. Somebody once told me the world was gonna roll me. I ain't the sharpest tool in the shed. Started low. She was looking kind of dumb with her finger and her thumb in the shape of an L on her forehead. Well, and write okay. it well. Actually, so right. 20 seconds. Yeah. 20 seconds. Okay. I was going to say happy birthday, but if you prefer All Star. By Smash Mouth. And who doesn't? Uh, for Thank you to whoever uh, pointed that out on Twitter, by the way. What uh, a delight. What a delight. Now I'm finally washing my hands. It seemed pointless. By the way, you have to sing Happy Birthday twice. So maybe that's another reason why you want to do that song instead. You have oh. to sing Happy Birthday twice to hit the 20 seconds. Rinse your hands with uh, clean running water and then dry your hands using a clean towel or air dry them. Um, if you do use hand sanitizer... Um, which, of course, we've talked about why it can dry your hands. But if that's what you got, use hand sanitizer. Uh, it It is fine to use if you don't have soap and water. A big thing is you apply it. Make sure you cover your hands. Rub your hands together all over the surfaces until they're dry. Hand sanitizers are working when they're dry. Mm. If you slap it on your hands and then go touch somebody while they're still wet, Not working. It, hasn't, it hasn't done the job yet. You can read more about hand washing at the CDC uh, cdc.gov if you if you need some more info uh let's see here um I, when i was a kid my mom one way or another got a cut on her leg i bled a lot but eventually stopped this would have been a totally normal and forgettable thing if it hadn't turned into a monstrous bump on her leg full of blood it looks like a mole we thought it was a blood blister but it's been 10 years and it's still there she named it it's called fred why is fred that's from Lindsay. I love these questions. One reason I love these episodes is that I learn things. I had not. So I, I read this and I thought, mm, I don't think I've ever encountered this. Let me look into this. There is something called a chronic expanding hematoma. Uh, it typically happens in an extremity like a leg. Uh, and usually there is some sort of history of trauma, maybe a cut or, or a, you know, some sort of like contusion, a bruise or a bump mm -hmm. or something. Um, but it's not really clear if it's linked to what happens, which is you get like a collection of blood underneath the skin. That's a hematoma. Right. That's what that is. Right. That's what that word means. And it continues to grow instead of just being resorbed by your body and gets bigger. And then sometimes just gets big and stays there for a really long period of time. It probably has to do with it actually developing its own sort of blood supply in there. Hmm. So instead of it just being like a fixed collection of blood that slowly gets smaller, more blood could be getting added to it. And then it kind of gets to like a balanced point where this is as big as it's going to be. But anyway, this sounds to me without looking or knowing anything else about your mom, <laughs> that this could be a chronic expanding hematoma, which you don't really need to do anything about, but now you know, why is Fred? That is why is Fred. And uh, right there, we're going to take a quick break. We're going to uh, head on over to the billing department, and uh, we'll be right back with uh, some more questions. Let's go. Let's go. The medicines, the medicines that escalate macabre for the mouth. We have just started rehearsing for the summer theater. That's right. Summer starts in March around these parts, and that means we don't have much time at all in the evenings to make dinner. But we will not be just consuming Wendy's, uh, although there will be some Wendy's consumed, but we are going to have a little extra help with Factor, which delivers ready-to-eat delicious meals right to your door, and not like junky stuff you get out of the freezer aisle, whatever. This is real 
high-quality, chef-crafted stuff that in two minutes you're ready to eat it. I'm talking about some Southwestern-style turkey and mac. I think this week I'm going to be enjoying a shredded chicken taco bowl is 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 part of my plan. Um, but they got like fancy stuff. Listen to this. Where are you going to get this? Truffle butter filet mignon. I mean, seriously? From 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 a, a box pre-prepared? All I got in two minutes? I mean, filet mignon? That sounds delicious. Yeah, it sounds delicious. And you can give these a try. And it's not just these meals. We're talking pancakes, smoothies. They got some great wellness shots that are surprisingly delicious. And the meals you just eat and eat. There's no prepping, cooking, or cleanup. Get as much as you need by choosing your meals every week. You're going to get exactly what you want. No surprises here. Uh, and the meals, I can say, are delicious. So what do you got to lose? Head on over to factormeals.com slash sawbones50 and use code sawbones50 to get 50% off. That's code sawbones50 at factormeals.com slash sawbones50 to get 50% off. Sydney, you know how you're always saying that you'd like to build a Justin McRoy fan site full of all your favorite quotes, clips, videos, and hunky pictures of beloved podcaster Justin McRoy? I don't remember. Well, there's that- no need to wait any longer, Sydney, because Squarespace is going to make it easier than you could possibly believe to make a website uh, all about your favorite hunky podcasting superstar. I don't think I was going Squarespace, to— Squarespace, what is it? It's a tool—think of it as— the palette, the palette of a web design artist. But you don't have to be a web design artist. You could just take stuff off the palette that is created by real people that know what they're really doing and put it from the palette onto the easel. The metaphor is broken down. Basically, you're going to be able to create great-looking websites that have fantastic customer support and help you unlock your creativity and do whatever you want to with your small business or podcaster obsession. You can sell products. You can uh, post your videos. You can share your stories about how Justin has shaped your life and is also a fantastic father. Folks, you got to stop waiting to make your Justin McElroy fan site. Go to squarespace.com sawbones for a free trial. And when you're ready to launch your Justin McElroy fan site, use offer code sawbones to save 10% off your first purchase of a website or domain. Let's waste no time. Let's get back into it. I got crazy sick with a virus last year. I spent 10 days in the hospital with a fever of just under 105. Oof, that's tough. And all over body rash, migraines, puking. I was ruled out for meningitis, Lyme disease, measles, every infectious disease known to man. Felt like it anyway. Stevens-Johnson syndrome and who knows what else. Completely boggled all the docs, never figured out what it was. A week or so after I got home, my hair started falling out by the handful. What the heck? Why? It grew back after a few weeks. Thanks, Donna. So, Donna, the uh, the detective in me really wanted to try to puzzle out what exactly you may have had, um, but there is no way I could possibly do that from this information, and that also would not help you at all with your question. It will so. keep her up at night, though, trying to puzzle <laughs> I out. I will keep head. thinking about it, Donna. So I will not attempt to do that. I am just glad that you are okay and that you, you made it through that awful ordeal safe and sound. Uh, the hair falling out is probably not a clue. 
your hair can fall out in response to any kind of extremely like stressful, especially like physical event, like an intense illness, like a severe illness. It's one that put you in the ICU. Any kind of episode like that caused by whatever the mystery illness was can result in you having hair loss afterwards. So um, whatever the sickness is, unfortunately, that can be a consequence down the road. Uh, I'm I am sorry that that happened. I'm glad that it did grow back, but it probably will not clue us in as to what the answer was. Uh, This is a wild one. I've never heard this. Is it true that novelty black foods like the black dyed treats that come out around Halloween can mess with medications that you're on due to the charcoal content? That's from Stephanie. This is an interesting question. I had to look into this. It sounds like a fable to me. So it, you know, activated charcoal is something that we can give you to bind with medications and specifically in, um, poisonings or overdoses or with certain substances it does not work for everything there's certain things that you can administer activated charcoal by mouth and it will bind with the substance and help pass it through the system so that you aren't poisoned it's like november 10th 2017 episode 208 of sawbones yeah we did it all on charcoal so you can you can learn more about the uses of it medically in that episode but um this is interesting because if we do have like foods, I like I've seen ice creams that this is popular with where they have charcoal in the mix. Mm, So they're, they're black and they're very striking. And so I think they were very trendy for a while there to eat foods like that. Um, or to make, you know, if you like an artsy chef baker to make them like that. Um, the the from what I have seen, there is no solid proof that this could work. Like there's no evidence. Nobody's, Nobody's had a case of this that I could find where they had an in, like where it seemed like this had actually happened. Um, certainly nobody's like studying that right now. Uh, but theoretically, if there is charcoal in the subs in the food and you ate enough of it, I think it is theoretically possible that it could inactivate a medication, specifically the one I was reading about was birth control medication. And someone was saying, well, I think if you ate this ice cream that has charcoal in it like twice a day, every day for weeks, possibly it it would bind enough of the birth control and it would lose its effect. Um, (laughs) The scares just keep on coming. So I ate I, too much ice cream and now I have a third kid. No, I have no proof that this happens. And I think that if it's a one off, you eat one of these novelty black foods one time. I have no reason to think that. Um, but if you're concerned at all, if you're on medications that have like a very narrow therapeutic range, just eat regular foods, just stay away from them. I, but again, this is this is all very theoretical. I, we don't have any cases of anybody having been harmed by eating charcoal food uh <laughs> charcoal dyed food uh oh, why is earwax an orangey color when most of our bodily juices like snot saliva etc are devoid of color if healthy that's from keely who is grody to the max nah this is not good earwax is important everybody what justin can you a- answer me why everybody's so freaked out by earwax everyone's it, always wanting to take their earwax away from themselves it feels bad it feels like it your body is doing something gross and you just discovered it and your body's been doing it behind your back secretly hiding in this little cave tolling away making forcing you produce wax it's grody wax isn't gross and it it's helps. satisfying when you finally use that you know ballpoint pen lid uh, to get it out see now i'm scared i hate oh i hate that please stop putting things in your ears everyone everyone listening Especially don't put Justin. 
don't put things in your ears. Anything smaller than your elbow does not belong in your ear. You could push the wax further in. You could puncture your eardrum. Probably you won't, but you could. Don't do it. And you can scratch the inside of your ear canal and get an infection. That is not the question, though. Um, Earwax, which is totally normal, and you're supposed to have some in there because it keeps the ear canal lubricated, and it also protects you from, like, bugs crawling in there and things like that. Sure, important. Earwax can range. There's literally no other defense (laughs) for bugs crawling in there. (laughs) Earwax can range from, like, a really pale... Uh, actually almost like whitish clearish yellowish color to orangish to dark orange Um, and all of those colors are normal and some of that depends on what is in the earwax like how long has it been in there and how much bacteria and skin cells and oil and sweat and all that has it collected and the more of that that it collects the darker more concentrated it might look and so it's gonna it's gonna have more of a color to it there are also genetic differences that determine what color your earwax is how dry or wet your earwax is how like you could have like little crystally bits or it could all be gooshy and waxy all of that the smell of your earwax is determined by genetic factors there are certain compounds that your genes decide if you produce or not Earwax is a fascinating science (laughs) and there are tons of different genetic factors that determine why your earwax is exactly like your, your earwax is kids produce more than adults, but some people produce more their whole life. I have to cut you off. I have Um, to cut you off. But it's all the stuff in there that usually makes it different colors. If your earwax is any other colors, you should go get it checked out. Like it, it, it is not under normal circumstances going to turn green, um, black, you know, if it's anything other than a variety of clear to yellow to orangish to dark orange, you know, have a doctor just take a look. I've been living with a yeast infection for about two years, not knowing what it is I had. I had thought that if anything was wrong with my body, it would have been detected by a pap test. I was recently disabused of this idea after speaking with my doctor, and I've since treated the infection. But it got me thinking, what medical tests are commonly mistakenly assumed to work beyond their actual function? from anonymous uh so i thought this was a great question because this is actually something i've come across a lot in my practice is um specifically we do we often will say something like i want to do some blood work as like as your physician we might say well i just want to order some blood tests on you and i don't always i'll tell you the general ideas of what i'm looking for but not I mean, unless you ask, if you ask, I'll tell you whatever you want to know. But sometimes I don't drill down into all the specifics. And I have a lot of patients who assume that the blood work, especially if it's like their yearly blood work, checks for anything that could be wrong with them. Mm. And that if there is any kind of medical problem, it'll show up. It'll show up in that blood work. The one I get asked about the most is probably cancer. I I have a lot of patients who will say, well, we know I don't have cancer because you did that blood work. Right. And it's like, well, I can't. There is no one blood test that can check for all cancer. And a lot of people are taken aback by that idea that like the tests I do might look normal Mm. despite the fact that there's a problem. Um, So I think that happens a lot. Actually, the the pap smear is another example of this. I have a lot of patients who assume that when the pap smear is performed, 
anything that could be wrong in that region, whether it's a yeast infection or bacterial vaginosis or a sexually transmitted infection, anything like that will show up on the pap test. And occasionally, depending on who's reading the results, occasionally somebody will mention if they happen to see one of those things. So... I guess that makes it even more convoluted. Occasionally, I'll get that back in a report. Like uh, everything looked normal in terms of we were looking for, you know, cancerous changes or precancerous changes, nothing like that. But we did see some evidence that looked like bacterial vaginosis. Occasionally, that'll come back, but not always. Mm. And if it's it, if they don't mention it, it's not because it wasn't there. It's just they didn't happen to see it, or maybe they weren't looking for that. Um, so this happens a lot. I'm a nurse, and I've noticed that certain elderly patients get thick, twisted toenails. Why is that? Anecdotally, I haven't noticed any common diagnosis, diabetes, PVD, what's PVD? Peripheral vascular disease. Et cetera, which every patient with gnarly toenails has. Today, I had a patient whose toenails, thanks to betadine on his feet, turning them orange, look like small Cheeto nubs, crunchy, not puffy. I hate feet, Elise. I think, Elise, at one point, your question just started turning into you complaining about feet. <laughs> I noticed that happen. Uh, the, I think the specific kind of toenails that you are talking about, although uh, thickened nails, like nails becoming hy- like hypertrophic, like just thick. And this is this is something a lot of people actually come in and think that they have uh, toenail fungus, that it's mm-hmm. a fungal infection, um, but it's actually just thickened. And that can that can happen to a lot of people. It's usually the big toe and it can just be friction from like tight shoes and that kind of thing can cause big, thick toenails. And they can even look discolored, but it's really just that they're super thick. Um, but I think what you might specifically be referencing is what is colloquially colloquially. Why do I always say that word? So it's a hard one. Colloquially. Colloquially. <laughs> colloquially. Colloquially. In layman's terms. It's hard. I can't do it either. <laughs> Ram's horn nail. Uh, the technical name is onychogryphosis. Now, why is that easy for me? But colloquial. No. Yeah. Um, and this this actually is this is more common among the elderly. You can see an association with certain things like like you mentioned, like diabetes, but it can just happen. Um, and it's related to we're not exactly sure, but we think it's some combination of probably some trauma to that part of the foot, um, some peripheral vascular disease. So like limited blood flow is what we're talking about. And um, just neglect of your toenails, like not you know, clipping them regularly a lot of the time because you're not capable of doing so anymore. Um, but, uh, but that specific deformity ram's horn nail can be seen a lot among the elderly. On my first day as manager, I was tasked with asking an employee to please stop picking his nose and eating his boogers in view of the other employees. He argued that it helped him build his immunity and then he never got sick. Is this real or just really ghost? Gross. That's from Jessica. Can I step in here? Okay. It doesn't matter. <laughs> <laughs> It doesn't matter. He doesn't need to do it wherever I don't I don't care if it makes him like very good at basketball and help him find great parking spots. Like he could do it in the privacy of his own like bathroom or car or parking spot or wherever. It doesn't matter. Also, you're you're whoever told you you had to do that stinks and you need to tell them that they need to go do it because you, you are not handling that kind of dirty work for them. Uh Jessica, I, I do agree with what Justin has said. Um, I will I will take it a step further. I, I We do not have 
uh, evidence that eating your own boogers makes your immune system better. I understand conceptually what it he feels may be. right. <laughs> well, but but the thing is, let me just throw this out there. If we're gonna fall, if we're gonna actually address this, if we're gonna take it seriously, I'm trying. If if these germs that are col- I mean, because that's the idea, right? Like your boogers have captured germs, stop them from going up your nose, and now you're going to expose yourself to small amounts of them by eating them, so that your immune system will create antibodies. Right. If the if the germs got stuck in boogers in your nose, some of them probably made their way in your body, right? Yeah, I guess that makes sense. So you've probably already been exposed to these germs and built an immune response to them. Yeah. The idea that your boogers are so good at trapping germs that every single particle got stuck in your boogers. I mean, I wish our boogers were that great, but they're not. We do get sick sometimes. So I, there is no evidence that that's true. Moreover, it, it really feels like a private thing. Private matter. I would just say, like, if you feel that strongly and you need to do this, that's just there are lots of things we do for our own health that are private things. Yeah. That you don't right. have to do in front of other people. Uh, dear Dr. Sydney and Justin McElroy, my weird medical question is about my blood type. I don't know what it is or how to find out what it is. That's from Abby. Me neither, Abby. I've learned a lot of times and I think I need to just put it in a card in my wallet or something. Because I keep forgetting it. Yeah. I, see, I always... Do you remember how I know mine? No. I've told you before. No. Mine's A positive. Oh, like A plus? It's an got A plus. It. Yeah, got it. That's what I like to get. Best grade. I like to get the yeah. best grade, the A plus. Great. I'm an A plus. Uh, it, it, you know, that's another thing. It's funny. After the question we already had about te- like patients misunderstanding what a test is actually looking for, um, I a lot of patients I have found will assume that I know their blood type uh, because I have ordered some blood tests on them before. It is a specific test we have to order if I haven't had a reason, like because you needed a blood transfusion or because you were pregnant. If there was no reason before for me to have looked, I probably don't know your blood type and your Mm. primary care doctor may well not either. Uh, If you go to donate blood, they will check it. They, They won't, you know, they're going to you're going to find out there. So that's one way you can find out your um, doctor can order your blood type. Uh, I would be cautious, though, if you don't need to know your blood type, you're probably better off. I mean, if you're willing and able and you're thinking of donating blood because our system is so messed up, I I have to have a reason to order a blood type on you or there's a chance, depending on what insurance you have or if you don't have insurance, that you're going to end up having to pay just to find out what your blood type is. Wow. I know that's ridiculous. Um, like I said, there are circumstances where I can, I can type you, uh, especially if you may need a blood transfusion. And if you do on a side note, we'll find out your blood type and cross and match and make sure that the right type of blood, at least all that should be done before you get blood. But, um, the only way is to actually go ask either when you donate blood or go ask your physician, Hey, can we check my blood type? And they have to order that specific test. Uh, I have one more. Yeah. I have a multi-part question about viruses. I was taught in all my middle and high school classes that viruses are not living things. However, you and other medical podcasts I listen to talk about killed viruses being used to create vaccines. My question is, are viruses alive? And if so, why can we not kill a virus once it has infected a person like we can do with bacteria? Cheers, Cindy. Cindy, I love this question because I always, that was actually one of the first things that drew me to viruses uh, back in the days before I knew I wanted to be a family doctor 
I, I thought about being an infectious disease specialist or perhaps a virologist because I learned that viruses are the living dead. Maybe. They're like the zombies of the biological world. There's, they have aspects of living things and they have aspects of things that aren't living things. And so they're hard to define. That's wild. They are living, but not in exactly the sense that we are living. That's wild. Yes, I know. They're fascinating. Viruses are fascinating. And, and because of that, I think that they can be a little scary. So when we talk about vaccines being made using killed viruses, I think that this is a handy term people are using to communicate to patients and the, the lay public that the virus in this cannot make you sick. Yes. But it has not literally been killed. That usually means that the virus has been modified and engineered in a lab so that the infectious parts of it have been removed. Okay. But gotcha. so it's not it's not killed in the sense that we think of a living organism ceasing it's more function. Like, it's more like neutered. Yeah, that's a, that's probably a good way to look at it. Actually, okay. um, it's a good question because it's not it's not alive in the way that we think of living. So you can't kill it, but you can just inject pieces of it that will stimulate an immune response. There's only certain parts of a virus or bacteria that our body is going to make an antibody to, mm, right? Right. And so as long as you know what that part is, that's all you need to inject into somebody. You don't need to inject the whole thing for the most part. And if you're going to use the whole thing, you attenuate it. You, you harm it in such a way that it is unable to cause disease. Um, but yeah, it's a great question because you're right. Viruses cannot be killed in that they are not alive, but they are sort of alive and we can sort of kill them. They're very goth. Was that helpful? They're very goth entities. Uh, we can't kill, and we, we do have viruses, we're, we do have some medications, limited medications that can try to um, hurt a virus. Again, I don't want to use the word kill, if we're, but hurt a virus once it's already infected you. But they're, they're just wily. They're a lot harder to do that with without um, harming the cells that they are infecting as well, which like are your cells, and we don't want to harm them. Um Folks, thank you so much for listening to this episode. We hope you have enjoyed yourself uh, so much because we have sure enjoyed uh, having you uh, on board. Um, thank you to the taxpayers for the use of their song Medicines as the intro and outro of our program. Um, hey, get pumped. Max Fun Drive starts next week. It's going to be a lot of fun. we got lots of great stuff. If you head on over to McElroy.Family, you can see all the cool stuff that's happening over there. But uh, catch the fever. It's going to be great. We're going to have a great, we got a great bonus episode. Uh, we'll talk about it next time, but it's good. You'll like it. You're going to love it. You'll love it. Uh, but that will do it for us for this week. So until next time, my name is Justin McElroy. I'm Sydney McElroy. And as always, don't drill a hole in your head. Org. Comedy and culture. Artist owned. Audience supported.